Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Tahira Ramatula, investor, advisor, entrepreneur extraordinaire. And many, including Fortune Magazine, call her one of the most powerful women in weed. Currently, she is president of T3 Ventures, which is a strategy and management consulting firm. And previously, she has worked with some of the most notable names in cannabis, including Privateer Holdings, Marley Natural, MTech, as well as Hyperventures, just to name a few. On this episode, you'll hear Tahira's journey of how she got into the world of weed. We start early in the beginning with her journey at Ohio State, where she was crowned homecoming queen. I love that. Before beginning a career in finance. We met actually when our paths collided at a hedge fund in New York, and she continued on afterwards getting an MBA from Yale University. It was after getting her MBA and at the same time that her grandfather was quite ill and he was looking for alternatives in pain management that she serendipitously got connected to the business of cannabis. I have always admired Tahira for so many things, for her sense of humor, which is amazing, for her self-awareness, and really for her empathy in people. And in a world consumed with so much titles and pedigree, and we talk about this a little bit in the episode, I love this conversation with Tahira because she's really honest about her journey and how it wasn't easy to choose a path and to be herself. But when you do... You truly shine, and I think that's what happened to Hira when she understood the power of her own voice. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with a wonder woman in weed and a homecoming queen. Hi, Tahira. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Thank you for joining me. So Tahira, the audience had heard your background, and you are listed as one of the most powerful women in weed. I'm curious about how you got there, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. But can you share from the beginning how it all began? Where did you grow up? I grew up for the most part in Ohio. My parents are from Pakistan. My sisters and I were raised in Ohio, and I I spent most of my childhood through high school there, but I did spend every summer in Pakistan and lived there for a couple of years when I was in middle school. So consider that my my second, Grachi, really my second hometown. But yeah, was, grew up in small town, Ohio, a very small town in Northeast Ohio called Conneaut, which it's so funny when people are always like, oh, where are you from in Ohio? I will usually just say Cleveland because there's just no point on saying Conneaut. Uh, but people are often convinced that they're going to know where it is. And then I say it and they're like, yeah, I don't know where that is. And uh, there's no reason you should. How did your family end up in the Midwest? So my my dad's a physician. He, he's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, he came to the U.S. from Pakistan in the 70s for residency. He actually did his residency in New Jersey. And it's funny when I when I ask him, you know, how did you end up in this small town in Ohio? I mean, it's literally a town where we never had house keys growing up because we didn't need to lock our door. And he'll joke that, you know, he got an offer to come 
be the only orthopedic surgeon in the county at that time. And, uh, you know, they, they paid him a salary that was a number he'd never seen before in his life. And he thought, well, you know, we'll do this for a little bit and eventually move on. And then they just stayed. Uh, and, and it was convenient, too. I mean, the, we grew up on this one block. The hospital was one block one way. His office was one block the other way. He still drove to all the locations. But it was it was comfortable. It was a great, actually a great town to grow up in. It was a very safe place, community, you know, generations of people who were there. You know, I always, people always joke about like, you all you want to do is get out of your hometown. And I certainly was one of those people. But when I think about my childhood there, I, I really appreciate it because people took care of each other. You know, we, my dad was the doctor that everybody knew. Nobody ever knew how to say our names and that was fine. <laughs> um, but my my dad has had the same secretary who was also our babysitter for 38, 39 years. You know, it's that kind of a place. So I, I certainly appreciate the Midwest for that reason. I mean, a variety of others, but particularly that. And some people kind of escape where they grew up and use college as that journey. Where did you decide to go to college? <laughs> so I didn't go that far away, although it was far from my parents. Um, I went to Ohio State which was about three hours from our hometown, which was very far from my parents, you know, particularly because they were immigrants and it wasn't a cultural norm for kids to go away to college, but particularly for daughters to go away to college. And I was the middle of three girls. So my older sister definitely had to bear the brunt of it. She, she ended up going to college at Allegheny, which is a small liberal art, art school in Pennsylvania. And we lived right on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania. And so my dad was so happy when she went because it was 45 minutes away. He never paid attention to the tuition. He was just like, this is great, 45 minutes door to door. And then the first time he got her tuition bill, <laughs> I think he realized how expensive college in the U.S. can actually be, and he immediately turned to me. He actually, I think, thought that that tuition bill was like for the full four years. And my sister was like, Dad, that's just the first semester. you know. And he immediately turned to me and was like, you need to go to a cheaper school. I had always had these aspirations that I was going to move to New York and, you know, go to Columbia or NYU. My dad was like, absolutely not. Uh, just too far away. We didn't live in a place where you could really commute to any colleges. So we, we kind of had to go away. I had my heart set on going to Case Western because I had decided I was going to be a doctor. And that's where all the doctor's kids went to go be doctors in Ohio. And my dad convinced me that I needed to have a backup school. So I applied to Ohio State on a whim. And it was funny because my older sister wasn't even allowed to apply there. My dad just said it was my, both my parents were like, it's too far. And my dad saw the price tag for going to a state school versus a private school. And he was like, why don't you try here? And I ended up getting in and I was really fortunate that I got a scholarship and it just, it made sense. Uh, I'd visited the university once and didn't really know that much about it. But, you know, that one visit was good. And I thought, okay, you know, from a, and from an economic perspective, it, it made sense. And I always had ambitions of going to graduate school. At that time, it was medical school. So then thought, you know, that's the one that I'll really strive for. Uh, and then I, I got to Ohio State and I just loved it. Really loved the size, loved the diversity. Never knew that I loved football as much as I did until I got there. Can any OSU grad graduate without being completely drinking the football Kool-Aid? A hundred percent. I have friends, actually friends here in New York who I went to college with, and they could not care less. You know, Saturdays in the fall are sacred for so many people when it comes to college football. Right. And I have a handful of friends that are like, oh, 
there's a game today and there's a population of us that are just, our minds are blown. Like, how do you not know it's game day? Go wash no matter, your mouth. Yeah, no matter how far out of school you are. Um, and I, it's funny because for my parents too, you know, football was not a concept in Pakistan, but especially when you get to big football schools, it is, it's a whole different world. And my parents could never understand why on a Saturday in the fall, they could not get a hold of me. <laughs> And then my last year of school, they came to a game because I was on homecoming court and they saw it. And, you know, the stadium had 100,000 plus people inside and there were that many people outside and there was no cell phone reception anywhere. And they finally understood why you could not find me for many years uh, on a football Saturday. And they're like, "Okay, we get it now. This makes sense. So one of the f- first pictures I remember seeing of you is a picture of you in homecoming court in a stadium. Tell me about that. <laughs> I- <laughs> That's when I peaked. That's when I peaked in life. Um, no, it's funny. You know, the it's it's such a nerdy process to be on homecoming court when you're in college. And I think obviously a lot of people equate it for with when you're in high school and right. You know, it's always the popular kids and everything. And I certainly was never in that crowd when I was in high school. Uh, but Ohio State, and I'm sure other colleges are like this too, but it's a, it's an application and interview process. You know, the tiebreaker is your GPA. Uh, if that. there is one, 90%, I think it's 90% is your your application, which is essays and your extracurricular involvement and your leadership across the university, interviews with alumni and staff, and then 10% of it is popular vote. So really, the popular vote isn't actually that much. You're you're kind of determined going into it. But you apply the spring before the fall that you're selected. So it's like pretty lengthy process. You're involved in a lot of community outreach events throughout the spring, the summer, and the fall. So it's, it's a really interesting process, actually, to go through it because you're engaged in all of these university activities, and then, you know, it culminates in being on the field and on that 50 yard line and I'm calling out your name. And it's really funny because it's, it's time down to the second. And if you don't get off the field, the band will run you over because they're televised games. So they're like, you have to be fast. So everything was actually pre-recorded, and people are up on the microphone and they're lip syncing <laughs> to all of it. And you're just waiting to hear like, what are they going to say? And then you get whisked off the field. But it was, I, I was pretty shocked at one being selected for it. And it was amazing because my family was there too. And I'd never had my family sitting in the stadium. You know, my sisters and my brother-in-law were there. So a uh, really fun experience. And just to be in that, in a stadium like that, looking up at people and you're like, none of you care who I am, but I'm really excited right now. But you're a homecoming queen. But I'm a homecoming queen. And it was pretty amazing. I mean, for the rest of that game, that crown got me into every suite that I wanted to go into, you know, all the private levels where you need a special ticket. I was like, I'm homecoming queen. And they're like, go right ahead. Like this is this is really might be the highlight of my life right now. <laughs> so when you graduated OSU, you could say yes, your achievement was homecoming queen. What did you graduate with in terms of major? What did you focus on? Uh, I was a finance major, uh, and I had also, I guess, not really a double major. That's not how they considered it, but I was pre med, so I was a super senior. It took me five years to do undergrad because I went into it with a pre-med focus, and then eventually became a, a finance major. You could you could select any major you wanted, and I kept thinking to myself, well, I guess one thing I had noticed is with my father being a physician and he was always in private practice that he would say, you know, the things he wished he knew were really on the business side because you're not taught about that when you're a physician. And so I thought that component was really interesting. I'd also started to think a lot about 
hospital administration and health policy and was fascinated by those areas. But also I realized that, you know, if I didn't get into med school or chose down the road to not become a doctor, which clearly is what happened, uh, there was nothing that I wanted to do with chemistry or biology or physics and was not smart enough to, to major in those subjects. And so finance seemed practical. So I guess technically it was a finance major and a what they called life sciences minor. So with your finance degree and a homecoming queen crown, what was your first job out of college? So my first job was Ernst & Young. I moved to New York and worked in a practice that at that time was called Financial Services Advisory, which was pretty much consulting engagements with major investment banks. So did that for a couple of years. I spent most of my time at Ernst & Young at Goldman Sachs as my primary client. And then you really just, I was going to work with them every day and loved Ernst & Young. Actually liked Goldman too, the group, the people that I got to work with, but just did not love the work. So yeah, so I was in Ernst & Young for a couple of years and then transitioned to a hedge fund. So that's where we met at a hedge fund based in New York. And how did you switch from Ernst & Young to kind of asset management or how did you mentally make that decision? So I had been trying to find ways to get out of Ernst & Young for a while. And actually, Goldman made me an offer, but I wasn't as excited about staying on that team that I've been working on and had been looking to transition out. But even though I was not an accountant or a CPA, I'd made it a point not to be one. You know, That's how the world viewed me, and that's how rec- recruiters viewed me. So I'd gone, th- gone through quite a few companies and opportunities that were really accounting focused because despite the fact that I would say I am not a CPA, they're like, that's fine. It's, you know, you have the experience. So I actually came into Perry Capital on the accounting team and worked on that team for about a year. And then there was an opportunity for, to move on to a new team on the investment side that was all around asset securities and was fortunate enough to overhear a conversation in the kitchen one day, knew what was brewing and was just like, I, I have to weasel my way into this somehow. And then ended up doing that for, I guess, about three years. Okay. So asset-backed securities did not float your boat after three years? You know, there was not, I don't think asset-backed securities floated anybody's <laughs> boat after three years, to be honest. There, it was, we focused a lot for the initial stages of that team on subprime mortgages. It was during the housing market crisis. Perry had a a smart team of guys who put on a short position that started to come to fruition. And they realized they needed more work around it and more team around it and more diligence. And so as the market started to fall apart and everybody started selling things like crazy, Perry was on the right side of it where they started going long and we got to really understand other elements of the market. And so I really spent time researching the market and spending time in Southern California and Florida, which was really eye-opening for me and just thinking about what have we done to America from a from a housing perspective. From, but when you think of really the class of people that it affected, it was middle and lower income populations who had got into, gotten into these mortgage situations and were just in over their heads, but it was accessibility. It's the American dream. You own a home. And I think for me, that research, being on the research side of it and getting to spend time in these markets was perhaps the worst and best thing to happen to me. Worst in the sense that I just was devastated every time I'd come back from one of these trips because I would actually go 
home to home, abandoned home to abandoned home and see what happened. You know, you could tell that families had run out in the middle of the night. And that was all a way to collect data because we were building a model in-house at Perry to understand what did these asset-backed securities look like? What did the actual underlying assets look like? But I was taking something very different away from it. But it was great in the sense that it made me realize that there was something else that I could do that was how do you take private capital and do social good. And I remember towards the end of your kind of Perry tenure, we talked a lot about your interest in social impact, making a difference. Is that why you chose to get an MBA? Yes. You know, I, I knew that I wanted to transition away from that the line of work that I'd been in. You know, I'd been I'd been labeled an accountant and didn't want to be. I was and labeled an asset backed security specialist and had never planned to be. And it's just funny when you find yourself in these situations, all of a sudden you become something and you had no intention of becoming that, but then you just keep taking the steps along that path. And for me, an, an MBA was a way to to not only break that cycle, but broaden what I, what I knew. I mean, I had this financial services backbone. I felt fine about it. I was like, I'm good enough at it, but it, it, I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't love what I was doing. And I wanted to learn more and just get a broader perspective on what else could I be doing with this? And how do I take elements of business and private sector and combine it with good and and doing social good and having an impact on communities and different populations. And I had no idea what that looked like. And so I thought, well, business school is a way to explore that. And I hadn't really done a lot of that exploration in undergrad. I was really focused on two areas that took up all my time being, you know, pre-med and, and finance. And so I wanted to have that broader exposure. How did you choose Yale as the MBA program of choice? It's funny. I feel like it's kind of similar to my undergrad or not, not similar, but in that it was a bit of a last minute decision. So I actually applied to business school twice. The first year I applied, I didn't get in and was devastated and was like, okay, life is over. What do I do now? And I was really lucky I came across this fellowship where I got to spend a year in Washington, D.C. and worked with an economic development fund and actually got to focus on urban housing renewal, which when I tell the story now, people often say, oh, so you're repenting for what you did (laughs) all those years at Perry. And I was like, you know, in one way, yes, but it was not intentional on either side. But while I was there, I really got to think about, you know, what really what were the types of programs that I thought I wanted to be involved with. And the first time I applied, I definitely was going for the top of the top, you know, going for the name and the brand and the ranking. And it's not to say that I didn't do that the second time around, but I think I was much more aware and in tune with what is my story and what am I trying to achieve? And definitely the first time I was writing essays, thinking about what do they want to hear and the second time I was like, this is a Hail Mary. I'm going to tell you what I what I want to say. And it turned out that worked. It's so funny. Um, the genuine real story actually is the one that always has that true impact. Yeah. And, you know, I had a I had an admissions consultant the first time and you spent all this time and all this money. And I mean, I was a miserable human studying for the GMAT for for there's so many people who take these tests and it's easy for them. They study for a week or two, they get a 750 and they're just off to the races. And I was not one of those people. I had a, I took the MCAT when I was an undergrad and that was really hard for me. And 
the GMAT was was no different. So it was a process for me. It was very draining. And, you know, you put a lot of what you think your self-worth is going to be into this decision. And so I I applied to some of the same schools that I did the the first year when I didn't get in. But then I changed it up a little bit. And actually, Yale was a new school that I had applied to. And it was entirely because the community development fund that I was working for in D.C., my boss had gone to Yale Law School. And he, which this is very typical coming out of Yale Law. So many people who go to Yale Law don't end up becoming lawyers, but do fascinating, amazing other things. It's just such an interesting program. And I've met some really interesting people, not only while at Yale, but in business in general and just across a lot of different disciplines. So Dave Wilkinson was my boss and he was like, I really think that you should apply to Yale School of Management. And it wasn't even on my radar, particularly because I was still a little bit trying to be a snob and Yale wasn't in the top 10. And I was like, I'm only applying to top 10, which is stupid. I mean, I went to Ohio State, you know, like I had no reason to be a snob, but I like had these aspirations that I was like, I have to go there. I have to go to one of those schools in order to achieve something. You know, I mean, you were at Perry Capital. It's like everybody was Ivy League. Everybody went to an Ivy, one of the best MBA programs. And I I constantly wanted to hold myself to that standard just because that was the environment I was in, not really thinking about, do I really care about this or not? And so I applied to Yale. Um, I ended up getting in there and actually completely like discarded it. And I got into Northwestern's Kellogg program and had kind of had my heart set on that. Went to visit the school. The admitted student weekends happened to be the same weekend. So I went to Kellogg first and it was just this, the weather was miserable in Evanston. It was rainy, it was cold, but I going into it, I'd made up my mind that I was going to Kellogg and I was so lucky to have been accepted there. And you know, it's a phenomenal program. And I flew to New York and was going to take the train to Yale and kept thinking, man, should I just ditch this? So just forget it. I'm not going to go here. And I am so thankful that despite how lazy I was, I still decided to go up just for the day. Uh, it was a Sunday and it was this random, beautiful day in February. And the sun was out. It was like 65 degrees and the campus was gorgeous. And you're, I just met so many wonderful people and it was just a really different experience. And I realized that, you know, I'd already done the big school. I'd done the big 10 school. I'd had this massive environment. I'd worked at really big companies and kind of gotten smaller. And what I hadn't done was this quaint little school where my class would be 250 people. And that in itself could be its own unique challenge. And so I struggled with it a little bit. I actually, Dave, my boss at City First Enterprises was like, why don't you just go, you know, accept both the schools, Kellogg and North and, uh, and Yale. And I think Yale started a month before Kellogg. And he's like, go to Yale. And if you don't like Yale after a month, you can just go to Kellogg. And I was like, there's so many logistics here I have to deal with. But that was that's how he thought. He was just super out of the box, which I loved about him. Uh, and I was like, no, this is crazy. I have to just pick one school. And so I thought, you know, Yale could be a really interesting challenge. And I'm so thankful that I ended up picking that school because if I had not picked that, I mean, there are a thousand things I could go on about about the program. But I would not have ended up in cannabis if I did not go to that program. So I'm very thankful for that. So I think it's interesting you said you wouldn't have gotten into cannabis without getting your MBA at Yale. 
I'm sure they don't have a cannabis specific course program. Yeah. So what happened while you got your MBA that changed kind of the course of your thought progression, whether it was social impact or getting back into finance and hedge funds or what was your thought process when you graduated? It really didn't come into play until my second year of business school. And it, it started off just purely personal. My grandfather during my second year of business school was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And I was my mother's father and he was with them in Ohio. And so she was his primary caretaker. And so that was really the first time for me. And I think for my parents as well and my siblings that we had someone so close to us suffering from cancer. And I think when you see that firsthand, it changes your perspective on a lot of things. But for me and actually for my my parents, I know my mother in particular, it changed our perspective on cannabis. And I never had any negative perspective on cannabis. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Ohio. It was everywhere. Uh, you know, you consumed it when you're in high school. And it, it hadn't really been a big part of my life, you know, once I got to college and beyond. But I never really looked at it the same way that I looked at cocaine or heroin or anything. It just kind of seemed harmless, and been, but never really bothered to look at why is this even an issue? It's a plant. And the funniest thing was really, I I credit my mother for this because one day she texted me and my younger sister and said, do you know where to get marijuana? And my little sister immediately called me and she was like, do you think this is a test? And I started laughing and I was like, well, I'm over 30, you're in your 20, like we're out of the house. I I don't think that this is a test, but let me call her and find out. (laughs) And it turned out that my mom you know, it was just, she was looking for alternatives and she was looking for ways to make my grandfather more comfortable and ease his pain and get him an appetite. And she kept coming across cannabis, you know, and this was 2013, early 2014. And to have someone like my mother and and both my parents who are, they're very traditional, they're very devout Muslims, you know, they've, they've devoted their whole life to giving back and, doing things the right way, that for her to say, do you know where I can get marijuana, (laughs) blew my mind. And I said, okay, mom, I know where to get it. I was like, don't get mad at me. I'm going to tell you where to get it. But also, I don't feel comfortable having the people that I know who can get you cannabis show up at your home. (laughs) But two, all I know how to get is flour. And my grandfather had lung cancer, so I couldn't have him smoke it. And on top of that, I don't know what's on it. You know, it's one thing when you're young and you're healthy and, you know, you could have certain things on these cannabis and it's not going to affect you. But for somebody with a compromised immune system who's older, uh, I was like, I don't want you to even try that type of product. So then we all started really looking into it. But I kind of went on this down this rabbit hole on what was going on on the West Coast, particularly in California around medicinal, because it had been legal, you know, since the 90s. But the variety of products that were there and, and what resonated with different populations as far as more medicinal product and the impact that it had on patients with AIDS and those with cancer and different illnesses and and the availability. You know, you had, it was all still very crude, but you had oils and tinctures and topicals and people were putting it, you know, you always heard about the pot brownies, but why did those develop? And it was because people needed a form to ingest it when they were sick. Unfortunately for us, we weren't really able to get anything for him uh, before he passed away. But it was eye-opening in the sense that not only did I realize that there was 
this product out there that had very clearly been anecdotally proven that it helped people. And so then I also started looking at why is this thing illegal in the first place? Like, this is crazy to me. So you go down the whole Google research hole of why was it illegal? How did we get here? And really learning about the history of it, which is entirely based on racism and business decisions. I'd love to, if it's okay with you, I'd love to have our listeners hear the history because I didn't know, I think similar to your upbringing, my parents were immigrants, very conservative. Any drug was bad. A cigarette was bad. So let alone weed or something that was not federally legalized. And so I learned a little bit from you about the history of it, which was shocking to me of why I think in my generation, I think it's so bad. And it was because it was categorized and linked with things like heroin and cocaine. So I'd love to have you share a little bit about the history of it. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, the turn of the century, early 1900s, late 1800s, cannabis was legal. It was available. It was you know, tincture form. Hemp was legal. What is tincture form? It's a concentrated version. It's a liquid. So people will use it in a dropper and you know, fast absorption. And most people will do it like under their tongue. Usually the carrier is alcohol. You can do it also with like coconut oil or something like that. But it's a different form of ingestion, right? And when you think about cannabis, uh, most people just think about smoking a joint, hitting a bong. Uh, but there's so many other ways of consumption and, and everybody's different. Their met- metabolism is different. How you absorb it in your body is different and people react to it in different ways. So it was interesting to learn about some of these other products. So if it was, it was legal in the 1800s, how did it get to have such a bad rap? The Mexican Revolution happened in what, like 1910. So there's this influx of, of Mexicans into the U.S. Uh, and then not... Terribly long after that, you also have the Great Depression. So you, there was an influx of Mexicans into the U.S. who also brought with them cannabis. And that was really the population that started using cannabis recreationally. And, and the term marijuana came from that population. And so when you're going into the times of the Great Depression, there's, there was a bit of a swell of nationalism that came about and people, you know, there's, it was a terrible period that people were suffering. But on top of that, there was a group of politicians and business and who capitalized on that. And so it really started with Harry Anslinger, who uh, I think it was termed the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at that time, which is a relatively new agency. And he just didn't have that much to do. There wasn't that much to go up against, but cannabis was something. And it was primarily consumed by minority populations, so namely Mexicans and Blacks. And so to be able to target specifically that product as a narcotic, and then also those populations worked in his favor. But in addition to that, there was this element of hemp. And hemp is a cousin of marijuana in that, you know, it's it's the same species, but grown has low levels of THC, high CBD, but it also was used for fiber. I mean, hemp was used as a as a currency back in the day. But then you had people like William Randolph Hearst enter the picture who was furious about the Mexican Revolution and he lost a lot of land to Pancho Villa. Obviously, he was a newspaper guy. He wanted paper, he needed that. And so hemp coming in as a replacement was, was not an option. And so you really had these, these powerful people kind of coming together to support 
a cause that made absolutely no sense. So it started in the 1930s and then going a bit beyond that, uh, there was also, you know, pharmaceutical uh, involvement in that I believe it was rayon that was developed at that time as an alternative fiber. But hemp was also a really strong alternative fiber and it was competitive. And when you think about it, I mean, this is still the case is, is that how does cannabis compete with big pharma? It's something you can grow at home. It's something that you can re- you know, take it yourself. And so how does a pharmaceutical company potentially combat that? So there are all these powers that are coming together and deciding that they don't really want this in existence because it hurts their businesses or their initiatives at different points. And this tax was put on for cannabis. And eventually, you know, fast forward to the 1970s and you had the Control Substances Act by Nixon. And that put cannabis as a Schedule One narcotic, which is crazy. And I always forget which this is, but it's either heroin or cocaine that is put on the same level. It's heroin. It's like a, a heroin category that's one. category one. And so then cocaine is a category two, which also blows my mind and that you you consider that less harmful. And of course, each, each of the schedules, schedule one is that there is no medicinal benefit. There's just absolutely nothing good to come of this substance. And then you go down that path, you know, you have a variety of controlled substances that are on there. But once that was put into place, it was game over. And hemp fell into that category also, which is insane to think about all of the amazing products that can come out of hemp. You know, obviously CBD is so hot right now and (laughs) people want to put it in everything and charge you triple the cost. What isn't better with CBD? (laughs) This is true. This is true. But at what what level and what impact does it have on, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, of course I can feel it. And I always laugh. I'm like, I have yet to ever be impacted by CBD. But I think because we still don't understand dosing and all of those elements of it. I, I very firmly believe, though, that people are feeling an impact of it. I know so many people who have suffered from, you know, insomnia or pain from a variety of, of illnesses who have actually felt an impact from it. And no matter what I feel or don't feel, you cannot deny seeing that impact on someone. So I very much believe that there's something real there. What I what I fear is that people take advantage of that and we're in that stage now. So going back to the history, so you know, the Controlled Substances Act came into play and that really is what outlawed cannabis. And we were kids of the 80s, just say no. And you thought that that, you know, it was, it was a bad thing. It was just as bad as doing pretty much any other drug. I mean, the whole Reagan era made it such a, terrible kind of bad thing. I mean, when you think about what's legalized and what's not, no one really dies from cannabis, but you can die from a lot of things that are legalized, which is kind of fascinating with alcohol and that other consumption. So you went down this rabbit hole, second year, getting your MBA. How did that translate to a career down this path? How did you choose that? It was totally random. And it's it's really funny that it happened this way. So my father, my grandfather passed away in February of 2014. And the day after he passed away, I was at my parents' house in Ohio. And I got a text from a former classmate of mine from Yale. He was a year ahead of me. And he had graduated without a job and had gone on this search for emerging companies and companies that had been started by alumni of the program. And I had forgotten what he was doing, but he joined a little company that was focused entirely on the legal cannabis market. And 
he texted me and he said, hey, do you have a job yet? And when you're sitting in February of your second year of business school, you are in straight up freak out mode that you do not have a job yet. But I had been really preoccupied with my family and, you know, was starting to get into freak out mode, but also was obviously very focused on on what was happening at that moment. And I said, I responded to him and I was like, no, sore subject. And what was interesting is that he and I hadn't been close contact. So he didn't know much. He didn't know that I'd been looking at cannabis because of my grandfather. I'd forgotten what he was doing. And his next text was, how do you feel about Seattle and marijuana? And then I remembered what he was doing. And I turned to my parents and I said, hey, what do you guys think about moving to Seattle and working on marijuana? I mean, fully expecting them to be like, absolutely not. That's insane. And, you know, moving on to the next subject. And I think it startled them for about a split second. And then they both sat there, thought for a couple seconds and said, you know what, that actually makes sense because we had realized the the impact that cannabis would have. But I think even beyond that, you know, my, my family being from South Asia, homeopathic medicine and natural medicine is very prominent. You know, like my parents are those people who have been consuming turmeric and ginger concoctions every day since they were, since I was a kid. And that's really common in our family. And so they understood that element of it anyways, but I think hadn't really introduced cannabis into that, but it's a plant and and they very much knew that it's just, you know, they, we all understood that there's this illegal element of it, but knew that there was potential there. And so none of us had, I mean, I didn't know what that would look like and said, okay, I'm going to, going to take the interview and see what happens. Had a really good conversation the first time and then went out to spend the day with Privateer Holdings, which was the company that ended up joining. And if anybody knows anything about companies right now in cannabis, they're not only one of the oldest companies that focus on cannabis, but they're one of the largest. They're credited with really paving the path for a lot of other businesses and uh, different verticals that have developed. And was really fortunate to just get that opportunity. I mean, for me at that time, that opportunity fell on in my lap and I really struggled with whether or not I should take it. And it, it, when I spent the day out there, I it was just the most fascinating interview process that I'd ever gone into. And it was very conversational, but also they would just, they threw me into conversations where they were just whiteboarding stuff. And at that time they were planning, trying to figure out the supply and demand model for Tilray which is now one of the largest publicly traded cannabis companies in the world. And at that time, they were just like, so how do we figure this out? You know, and you're thinking through the transition from the consumers from the illegal market to the legal market, you know, medicinal, all of the, all of those things that we didn't have the answer to at the time. And on one side of it, it was, it was terrifying because I was like, none of us know any of this. But on the other side, it was like, none of us know any of this. We're going to make this up. We're going to figure it out. The other terrifying element was that, you know, I thought I spent all this time and all this money to get this really fancy degree. Am I essentially just lighting it on fire by taking this kind of a job? And that was a real fear. I mean, I didn't know if I would be employable after that role. And I didn't even know if I'd have a job after a couple of months, you know, and you're coming out of business school, you have some debt. All you want to do is start making money again to be able to pay off that debt. 
And I went to some of my professors at Yale and said, you know, is this just the worst idea ever? And they were so supportive. And they said, this might be the most interesting thing you ever get to do. And even if you don't have a job in three months, you're going to have the most interesting stories to tell. And I was like, you know what? As a person who came out of finance, I'm just waiting to be the most interesting person in the room, finally. Uh, So I, I took the job and debated it for a while. And really, once I once I looked at some of the other options that were out there, I was like, this is the time to do this. This is the time to take a risk. This is the whole reason I went to business school was to try to do something different and something that I felt strongly about. So this is in 2014. And so just to remind listeners, this was way before it got very, you know, as Mugatu says, very hot right now. But this was before it was legalized in many states, let alone a, even a potential for federal legalization. It is a big risk for you, on your part to take this categorical you know, career risk. Now it's been five or six years and you've been very successful in this space and, you know, labeled as the most, you know, powerful woman in weed and a top five executive. How do you think that has evolved both for the industry and also for your career? Most people do not have any kind of fear of going into cannabis anymore. And I mean, I can't even tell you how much I agonized about the decision to to come into it. But also when I was hiring a team for a brand that I worked on, Marley Natural, I had to I had to beg people to come join the company. There were it was not an easy sell. And when you think about now, everybody wants to get into cannabis, you know, from every industry. That's also the fascinating thing about cannabis is that it intersects with just about every industry that you can think of. Every demographic. Absolutely. It's I mean, what product or uh, you know, industry or anything can you say that about that has such a strong pull on so many different populations and so many different skill sets. And that's one of the things that I really continued to to love about it is this, it's this universal language that I feel like we never really knew existed. You know, and there's just this beauty in that. It's amazing how many times people now want to tell me their like cannabis story, you know, like the one time they got too high or they had that edible experience and it's from the people you would never expect. And it's just so funny to to have that experience now. Like your like your mom or your grandfather. Or Definitely not them. <laughs> Definitely not them. But, you know, people who you would be shocked that have are telling you that kind of a story, you know, but they you bond over it. And it's funny you say it was hard for you when you worked at Barley Naturals to get talent or recruit people because this is the kind of celebrity endorsed of the affiliation with like Bob Marley. You'd think that this is a natural, hey, this is an easy celebrity endorsement brand. And it was still hard back then. So hard. The concepts of brands in cannabis was really hard back then. It's funny now. I mean, I feel like I hear about five new brands every day and brands, you know, it's brands left and right. It's to the point where I roll my eyes every time I hear about a new brand. I'm like, you have no idea where we started from. And this uh, was like only, this, I mean, five years five ago. Five years ago, it wasn't. I mean, it's Marley so Natural was even less. We launched it at the beginning of 2016. It was not that long ago, but it was a, such a different world. I mean, people often joke that if you are in cannabis, it's dog ears. You know, so that's why people will say I'm a veteran. And I'm like, I haven't been doing this that long. But man, do I have the gray hair to show that I've been doing this for longer than than a lot of people when it was a lot less easy and it's still not easy. You know, it's still a federally illegal product in the U.S. that you have to navigate state and local. But when it came to trying to recruit people and convince people, there were a lot of really amazing candidates that I felt like I got down and just was pleading with them (laughs) at some point. 
and they couldn't do it. And, and good reasons. I completely understood. You know, there an example is there was a woman who I really wanted. She was phenomenal for PR. And she says, you know, I have, I have the stepdaughter who's 15. How do I... And, and she was also a big sister. She goes, how do I not only have this stepdaughter, but also I'm a big sister. How do I go in and, and tell them not to do these types of things and, and set a good example? But then on the other side of it, have this celebrity endorsed product that's actually still illegal in New York. And that Marley Natural was based, the team was based in New York, but we launched our product in California. And I can't argue with that. You know, I totally get it. We The conversation hadn't evolved to that point yet. And, it, and it's still evolving. And I think that the evolution has, for better or for worse, has started to come more to light and become more acceptable because you have really mainstream people now involved with it. You know, executive from Fortune 500 companies and major hedge fund Wall Street guys who, coming into it. And because of that, it becomes acceptable. I don't love that because there's so many populations that suffered and fought for it prior to that population coming into it, but that gave it the, to some extent, the stamp of approval. And now it's not hard to recruit people. So you're now the CFO of MTech, which I think is the only publicly traded SPAC in the space focused on investing in cannabis related businesses. And also you're related to hyperventures. Can you talk about what your role is now in terms of the companies that you are affiliated with? Sure. So MTech is a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. So we were the first SPAC in the U.S. in particular to focus on the cannabis industry. And we wanted to focus on ancillary businesses. So businesses that are considered not plant touching. So technology, regulatory compliance or licensed brands. We thought that there was a really interesting opportunity to take an ancillary business public. And so we're, we're still in that transaction right now. And that really is a focus on acquiring one company and then doing an M&A strategy to create a much larger entity that focuses from a technology perspective on the cannabis industry. Hyperventures is a venture capital fund. When I first joined them, the first fund was focused exclusively on ancillary businesses. And I really worked as an operating partner with that to get involved with the businesses, help management teams, like actually get in under the hood and help assess what's going on, help correct things, provide resources. And now we're getting ready to launch our second fund that will focus broadly across the cannabis and hemp industries, significantly larger size and also focused on more of growth stage capital, M&A, looking at, at how the industry is involved and how do you really start putting the pieces together. I also think that there is, not dissimilar to other industries, but there's going to be a distressed opportunity, not too long, too far down the road. So to be able to assess those opportunities and take advantage of that. And then outside of that, I work a lot with emerging brands and startups in the space. I particularly like to focus on female and minority entrepreneurs and just helping provide access and training. I think one of the biggest things that I've continued to learn is that It's not as much about not having the great idea or the chops to get the business to market, but when you don't have access to the funding populations or the the networks um, or haven't been trained on how to pitch, on the information that people want to hear and see, uh, you won't 
you won't be able to get that seat at the table. And now I've been in enough meetings where I've learned enough of this stuff and been on both sides of the table and feel feel like that's a really great way to give back and help the community evolve. So I focus quite a bit on that outside of some of these other things. It's What's interesting is, I mean, I, I've known you for, for many, many years and I've heard your evolution and I've seen your evolution of what you wanted to do, what you explored during your MBA program, and then also what you've been doing for the last several years. And it seems like you finally combine all the things you want, the social impact, the business side, the finance side, the organization side, and also the diversity movement. If people were to hear this and also read all the articles about you of being, you know, the top five women in weed, one article said to hear is literally the most powerful person in weed and women in weed and all these things. Don't believe everything you read, but I'll it's, take it's, it. it's nice and refreshing to hear all of the unknowns or struggles that you went through to get there. What do you think in hindsight has been one of your most impactful or memorable failures, whether personal or professional, because it seems like both really impacted you enough to get you to where you are today? You know, on the professional side, I think it's been this ongoing process of learning and feeling like I've failed a dozen times and in various capacities just along the way. And that, you know, the jobs I had, I think, prior to business school, with the exception of the Community Development Fund, I wasn't really passionate about it. They seemed logical. They were the smart thing to do. They, I learned a lot and I attribute a lot of what came after that to, to those companies and those skills. I, I never loved it. And there have been parts of being in cannabis that I haven't loved. I mean, I, I think it shaved years off of my life. But I am fascinated on a daily basis. But I think just that process of learning along the way that's like, man, should I really be doing this? Is this what I want to do? You know, I think a lot of people probably have those days where they wake up and they're like, ugh, I can't believe this is what I'm doing today. But then beyond that, I mean, even within cannabis, I've, I feel like I've had a dozen failures I've, I've made some bad decisions that I thought were the right ones at the time and other people disagreed. And when you're working in a hierarchy and thinking that you know, you're all just, you're sprinting and sometimes you just get so lost in the bubble that you're in that sometimes you trip up. And I've been in situations where, you know, I, I've, I think prior to cannabis, I was just used to continuously moving up the ladder and you know, it's a lockstep structure. You kind of know where you're going. And then you came into cannabis at a time where everything was fair game, but nobody knew what was going on. And you had to make some big missteps. And that was not only with, you know, big business decisions, but also with staff. You know, I had a team of people at Marley Natural. And at one point, I, I often joked that we were like Disneyland. We were the happiest place on earth. But sometimes you know, your team gets big and you lose sight of how do you manage all of that? And I, I had some really big mistakes there, I think, in communication, transparency, and just making sure that everybody feel like they knew what was going on and that, that we were moving towards the school together, but also making sure that people are taken care of. You know, And I think that that's, that's a a big thing that when you mess that up, you lose control, but you also lose trust of people. And so that's something that's really, I think, stuck with me. And as I've moved into other organizations and I, I work with other organizations and give them feedback and that, you know, if you don't, if you don't treat your people right, or if you don't make sure that you're paying attention to that human capital element, none of this is ever going to work. 
And there are certainly companies that have done fine and probably have somewhat toxic environments. And I'll never say that Marley Natural came to came to that point, but it's when you scale really quickly and you're just moving at light speed and you're trying to achieve certain goals, you have to make sure you stop and pay attention to how people are feeling. How do they understand what's going on? Have you structured appropriately? Because structures in these organizations change too. And I think that was a huge lesson for me and something that I had to fail at in order to, to actually understand that going forward was that the people who maybe are great the first six to 12 months of a company's life before it's in market are not always the ones that are the ones who are supposed to be there after or the structure has to change. And you have to look ahead for that. And cannabis is moving at such a wild pace that I think people lose sight of that. And only because I tripped up, I learned. Now I have that, this, you know, I'm this oracle of knowledge <laughs> about that and can go into companies and tell them, like, you have to pay attention to this. And they think I'm brilliant, which is great. But it's only because I failed at it, you know, and I, I had to, I went to some of my staff and, you know, genuinely apologize. Like, I messed this up and I'm so sorry that, you never want people to walk out of something and feel like they wasted their time. And I think that that was a, a big thing that I've learned and have carried with me as I move into to other instances and making sure that some conversations are horrible and they're really tough to have, but you just have to have them and you have to be open to to taking that risk and doing that. You sound, th- thank you. That was, I loved hearing the lessons learned from just the lack of communication, strength in communication, which ultimately I think regardless of industry is the most additive thing you can work on. It seems like you've learned a lot about yourself in the whole process, but also the priority or the importance of labeling. And I love how you, whether you were looking at the Yale MBA program and saying, you know what, I don't care what people think about the labeling of what's a good business degree at MBAs, whether it's Kellogg or GSB or HBS, like a lot of people fall into this trap. And I had a meeting earlier with the, uh, an investor at a large endowment who he just went to his 15th year GSB anniversary. And the New York Times just had an article two weeks ago about how so many people who are financially successful, who have these business degrees, are miserable because they went down this path because the labeling and the categorization of what was deemed successful or respectful was this or that. And what I love about your career is that you have a lot of unknowns and you have a lot of, let's try this out and see where it goes. And you learned along the way, which includes a lot of struggles and bumpy roads. One thing I wanted to ask you just to get your perspective is you are Pakistani. You grew up in Ohio. You got this MBA. You are in this industry that is primarily male focused. To have your voice is very unique in any industry, but the cannabis industry is so wild and it's kind of like this wild old west. How have you seen your perspective and diversity of thought benefit in this smaller sector, right? That your perspective is pretty unique. And so how do you think that's affected the cannabis industry? So I think that's why I get the title of one of the most powerful women. Honestly, there just aren't that many of us, which is is sad, but not dissimilar, quite frankly. I mean, we come from finance, right? There, there weren't that many women who were in leadership roles. And when you think about it, I mean, this is just rampant across all industries right now. And we've been seeing that so much and that you need representation. People need to see themselves to know that it's even possible to do that kind of work. And with cannabis, what was interesting is that there really was no template. You know, when I came into it, there were a handful of people, mostly 
white men. But I also, you know, I owe a lot to those people who gave me my start in the space and then realized that I'd also outgrown a lot of that too. And then I wanted, I wanted to be this voice and for better or for worse, people keep giving me a microphone and allowing me to speak about these things. But I realized too, it's because there just aren't that many, you know, at some point it's going to work against me to say this because my 15 minutes of fame will be over, but I hope that there are way more of me in the future because there just aren't right now. I'm, I'm one of the few women who is not white who can speak on these panels, but particularly on the investment side of the industry, there are not that many women who run this space. I mean, I could name all of them for you or the ones who are affiliated with funds or, you know, angel investors and people often joke. So they're a, a great friend of mine, Emily Paxia, who was one of the early, her, her brother, Morgan, they started one of the first investment funds called Poseidon Asset Management, 2012, 2013, something like that. They were early. I mean, they were pioneers. And she and I became friends a couple of years ago. And, and she's one of those people, I mean, she's kind of one of my idols in the space and has become just a great friend. But people often joke that do you, are you, do you guys, are you just attached to the hip? Because we speak at engagements together all the time because we're two of the only women who do it. And we're like, we're just the only ones here, you know? And it's not that dissimilar from hedge fund land or wall street or tech to be frank. And I wish it was. And so part of what I, what I feel like is my responsibility is to continue to be that voice as long as people will let me, as long as people will let me talk about it and, you know, let me keep ranting and raving about things that I think are important in the space and that we don't lose sight of, then I want to keep doing it because hopefully if we keep just having those conversations, I mean, that's half the battle, right? People will turn a blind eye to it. It's an honor and it's a privilege to be able to at least be handed the mic to, to talk about it. And so as long as people will let me, I'll keep doing it. And hopefully that will, encourage other people to get involved, encourage other people to keep talking about it, and also change policies around how we think about hiring. Make it a point. I want to see companies say that we will commit to having diversity in our organizations. You know, it's, and not just, it's not just about skin color. It's about diversity of thought, thought about socioeconomic status. You know, there's, there's so many different layers of that, but we don't have really any of that. And that's, that's something I think that we've not done well as an industry. Who or what inspires you to get better every day? So a lot of it, I think when we think about who, it goes back to my parents, massively influential in my life. I think that they sacrificed a lot. They were, are people who continue to give more than they receive. And no matter what situation has happened to me, you know, I've had some tough times in my career, in my personal life. They're, they're people of faith and are very forgiving and very just spiritual in the sense that there's a bigger cause. And I think that that, although I, I am certainly not as devout as they are, but I, I think that element constantly resonates me, with me because they're, they're so willing to give their time and energy to other people and they don't expect anything. And that's been hugely inf influential as my, my life, particularly as I get older, because everything that they've done is for us and for their family, for their parents, for their siblings. And there's just this simple beauty in that. They don't strive to be extraordinary. They, they, they see this beauty in ordinary and 
I think that that's something that I, I constantly have to remind myself to come back to. I'm horrible at it. I am one of those people who will always compare myself to everybody else in the wrong circles and, and say that I've, I'll never, I'm not, I haven't achieved anything. I haven't succeeded. And my parents will be like, are you crazy? Like, look at what you've done. And so they, they continue to inspire me. They continue to influence me. You know, I think particularly in the last couple of years, just seeing these amazing women come out of all of these different uh, industries. And I mentioned to you, Emily Paxia, who's hugely influential in my life and in the cannabis industry. And I will always put her up on a pedestal. But when I think of women in, in across industries who are, there's this movement going on right now and it's a long time coming, but people who are really willing to rattle cages and say things that haven't been said, but should have been said and are willing to really take risks. And I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, but you are also a huge inspiration too. I mean, just, I've, I've known you for so long and for you to, to do the podcast that you're doing and the conversations that you want to have, I think it's so honest and you're really good at it. And I, I'm it's so honored, I'm really not. <laughs> you know, we're all so much editing, but I appreciate so much that you wanted to talk to me of all people. I mean, I've listened to your other podcasts. I'm like, these women are crazy. They're amazing. Um, how, how am I going to fit into this? And I think you want to go out there and shake things up and bring stories to light. And I think that is a huge thing that we're starting to see more of, but it's, it's important to do that. And it's not easy to do that. And, and so those people like you and people like that continue to inspire me. And I, I hope that I can do that for women, men, minorities, just people who want to want to feel like they have some source of empowerment, I think is something that really drives me. And I don't know what that looks like at the end of the day, but I, I hope I can do it at some point. Well, I am better off hearing that. And I think it inspires other people. And first of all, thank you for that crazy compliment. I think it, one of the things you mentioned was really interesting where you said your Yale application, your first application was adhering to what you thought was the tribal culture and the societal contracts of what you should be doing and what you should be saying and what you should be applying to. And ultimately you got in the second round because you said, you know what, screw it. This is how I feel. This is what I stand for. And this is what really means something to me. And that's actually what got you into a really great program. And similarly, when you think about your life course, you got the results you wanted even better when you did that second round of applications, when you were more genuine, when you were more open and more vulnerable to what you wanted to expose yourself in. Like, this is what I really stand for. If you were to be approached by a young entrepreneur today, minority or a female or whatnot, what advice would you have for them today? Trust your gut. That sounds so cliche, but I I have to say that as I've gotten older and I'm still not great at it, I will still agonize over decisions, even though I probably knew the decision that I was going to make, you know, within the first five minutes, but I'll take like a month to make it. But you have to trust or learn to trust yourself at some point. So if you feel really strongly about something and you've had a hundred people who are way above your pay grade and successful in whatever terminology tell you no, you still have to go after it. And you, you might be wrong. And so, and so the other side of that too is be, be aware. Make sure you're looking at your surroundings. I think there's a little bit of this 
we're we're all so entitled these days where we're just like, I have this amazing idea or I'm this or why am I, I should be an influencer. And it's kind of ridiculous because it's like, what does that even mean? Why should people listen to me? And so you you should believe in what you're doing or the idea that you have, but make sure you know why. Test it, gut check it, kick the crap out of it to make sure that the concept stands because I've, I've seen so many entrepreneurs saying like, this is the best idea ever. You're never going to hear this again. And it's like, here are a dozen decks who pretty much say the exact same thing. So, so do your research, you know? And so there are two sides of that. You have to follow your heart and your brain to some extent, but also be willing to listen and take your blinders off and see what's going on out there. And it, it's a hard balance. I mean, I think a lot of us, fluctuate between that forever. But the awareness aspect is really important. Awesome. Well, Tahira, thank you so much for joining me. Your persistence and your self-awareness and your courage to follow the path that you know is right for you, I think will really be an inspiration to many people. Thank you for having me. 